jumped in our command vehicle, grabbed a cup of coffee, and we started to make the drive. And we drove for the first mile through this campground, and there wasn't a tree down. There was no damage, no trees down. And I remember turning a corner, and I'm like, I had a sick feeling in my stomach that we had called all these resources in, you know, from this Mabus response. And I'm talking hundreds of people the first night. And, uh, and we hadn't seen any damage. Well, then we turned this corner and I looked up probably 60 feet in the air and there was a mobile home wrapped around a tree and it had the insulation hanging out, which looked like a person. And, uh, and that, that's when, uh, for the next, I would say mile, mile and a half, that's all we saw. And all we could think of was how many dead bodies were we going to have that morning, you know, as we really started to go in and do a secondary search. Welcome to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. And in this episode, we're going to dig into a different fire service deployment model that I've never really been involved with. It's going to be an interesting conversation, to be sure, about how many departments, particularly out in the Midwest, staff their departments. We're also going to dive a little bit into some other topics as well, like uh, how a fire service, how the fire service led one person from one of the largest fire departments in Illinois to become an entrepreneur and a business owner for what's now a pretty large multi-state fire service equipment distributorship. With that, please welcome Nick Dingus, f- formerly from the Rockford, Illinois Fire Department and now an assistant chief with his sublet fire protection district in Illinois and the chief executive officer of Dingus Fire Company. Nick, good to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Robbie. Appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. So uh, it's it, we were talking a little bit off before we got this going, I've got even another question to add to the list for you as we go through this, because um, from Virginia, you know, I'm kind of call it isolated, but I was fortunate enough over my career to do a little bit of traveling and see some other departments and see how other organizations were kind of organized and rank structures and informed and, and things like that. So I want to kind of talk a little bit about that, because I think around Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, some of those parts of the country, they have a little bit different model. Uh, to go with. So uh, in your, your current job or your current position as an assistant chief and in, um, in sublet, yeah, I think it's kind of interesting to kind of hear your thoughts on that. But uh, let's go back a little bit further than that and talk about uh, how you got started in the fire service. Yeah, well, I got started in the fire service in 1997. Um, as we were talking a little bit earlier, I'm one of 12 in my family in the fire service. So Growing up, my grandfather was on our, our local fire department. My father was the assistant chief. He started in 1957. Uh, my brother started in 1983. And as soon as I turned 18 and 97, uh, that I just knew that that was what I was going to do uh, to the point where my neighbor was a, a captain on the department. Um, when my 18th birthday happened, he walked through the backyard. He handed me a pager. He said, here you go, kid. You're on the fire department. And uh, we caught an accident the next day. And I was I was absolutely hooked. So you know, growing up around it, uh, riding with my dad and my brother to fire calls, accident scenes, just kind of in your blood. And uh, I always enjoyed doing that. And when I turned 18, it was no different. And uh, to be part of the action, I guess, if you will, uh, really excited me. I got my EMT license uh, when I was 18, 19 years old, uh, which I think I'm on my like sixth or seventh renewal of that, which is hard to believe. Uh, but I really just enjoyed it. And uh, after I joined Sublette, I was lucky enough to do the live-in firefighter program at Macomb, Illinois, uh, while I attended Western Illinois University. So I spent three years living in the firehouse. 
I had free room and board. They paid me a thousand, or I'm sorry, a hundred dollars a month. And then we went on calls when we weren't in class. Uh, so that gave me some great experience. And as soon as I turned 22, I was a senior in college and uh, the Rockford Fire Department called for a career job. Uh, so I always felt lucky. I always felt blessed. And then over the last couple of decades, we've been able to infect, I think I've got four nephews now, four or five nephews in the fire service. Um, I've got a sister that joined on our EMS side uh, this year, uh, three brother-in-laws, which I'm sure my in-laws don't always like me, uh, at family events, because now I've got three brother-in-laws that are part of it as well, and then a whole host of cousins and, uh, and, and yeah, uncles and everything else that are part of it. So we just really enjoy it. Wow. True, true family affair. That's pretty interesting. Um, any, just out of curiosity, has any of the fire, any of the family made the leap over to the law enforcement shop? That's kind of always an interesting dynamic in families. Anybody done that yet? No. So I would say, uh, well, not any of my direct relatives. I've got several cousins on the law enforcement side, but they also are on the fire side. Uh, but none of my siblings or uh, nephews to this point have, have gone over the, the, the LE side. Uh, we've tried to tell them it's it's the only two things that cops and firemen have in common are they both want to be firemen. So <laughs> that's uh, exactly right. That's exactly right. You see all those memes come out with firefighters next to the pump panel going, which one of these has coffee coming out of that's, it? I don't that's, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So talk talk a little bit about when you got started. Uh, it sounds like you know here's the pager. Let's go. Was was there much training involved, or or would you consider those years before you got the pager riding along with your dad and your, your rest of your family as kind of on the job training, getting ready for that 18th birthday? I think a lot of it was trial by fire. No pun intended. You know, when you date back uh, to the Midwest, and when I say Midwest, uh, we're 90 miles west of Chicago, so it's very rural, very small. Um, our resident population is only 450. Our district population is 1,100. Um, however, we have the world's largest campground in our district, so it's not uncommon to have 30,000 people in our district on a weekend. Uh, but I was uh, the youngest person to join the department by about, I think, seven or eight years. So I, once I was on, I really enjoyed the training side of things and uh, started taking uh, training at the University of Illinois through IFSI, which is the Illinois Fire Services Institute. Um, and then any hands-on training I could get, I wanted to be part of. And as soon as I went to college, um, I, I took finance as my major in school. Uh, but at nighttime, I took both my EMT courses and my, my firefighter too, which is now the basic firefighter in the state of Illinois. Um, and, and I tried to get as much education as I could. Um, I would say on a small rural department 25 years ago, a lot of it, no pun intended, was trial by fire. Um, I remember going to a, a barn fire and I'd never worn an SCBA. And uh, the officer that was on scene puts the, this old Scott, it had the elephant trunk on it. It had a steel tank. And he goes, here you go, kid, have fun. And I walked into this barn where you can't see the hand in front of your face, you know, with a pitchfork and, and a hose line. And, you know, we started uh, pitching out hay and straw and everything else that was on fire in this barn. And I actually thought it was going to kill me. Um, I had never really worn an SCBA before. And, and we had long coats and, and the hip boots at the time. Uh, so it was very uncomfortable. And, you know, the mask through the old elephant trunk would always get the corrugated tube would get caught up when you're trying to pitch hay out and I could hardly breathe. But um, after that, we got uh, within the next year or so, we got better breathing apparatus and uh, made the job a little bit easier. And of course, you get in better shape too, the more fires you go on and more used to it. So yeah, makes those young guns uh, make sure they appreciate that the positive pressure uh, SCBA they've got today for sure. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that uh, any of those younger folks appreciate, you know, the challenges we had uh, many years ago. That's right. 
So um, you went from uh, from there to to college. What was that experience like? It's kind of it, you lived in a firehouse. It sounds like pretty much. I think the University of Maryland also has a program very similar to that, where uh, you wind up being a volunteer or working as the firefighter, as the fire protection for that community, for that college community. Is that uh, kind of how it worked? It is. So it was, it was very fun. My brother had done it 14 years before I did. So I knew that the program existed. It really wasn't publicized. Uh, but when I got down to school, my freshman year, I'd reached out to the fire chief at the time there wasn't an opening. He called me the summer before my sophomore year said, Hey, hey kid, we got one opening. Um, if you're interested, please apply, which, and, he, and thank goodness he liked my brother. So I applied, <laughs> I was hired and, uh, and, and we did, we just ran calls when we weren't in class. We got a, a bunch of great training. I uh, got to learn under the tutelage of some, some guys that I highly respected and a, a captain of operations I highly respected. And then I was able to take a lot of that training back with me, obviously to sublet when I was home on the weekends and during the summertime and apply, you know, a busier place. And when I say busy, uh, they had just taken over EMS, which they had never done before uh, when I got hired there, I guess when I lived in there. And the call volume went from about 500 a year to about, I want to say 12 or 1500 almost immediately. And uh, matter of fact, today, I think they're up close to two or 3000 calls with uh, the full EMS integration, but it was fun. And it was also fun as a young EMT, uh, since they hadn't done EMS before, a lot of the older firefighters did not want to touch EMS. And of course, when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you know, you're, you have an appetite to do about anything. So every time a med run came in, I would jump on the rescue if I could and go with those guys just to learn. So uh, some great experience for sure. Oh, neat. Well, uh, that, that department at that college, were there also career staff on staff or was this all student staffed? No. Nope. So there were only two students. Uh, they were staffed uh, at the time. The max was six per shift. And then we had a, um, a chief a chief officer as well as a captain of operations. So total strength was, I believe, 20 at the time, plus two students. Uh, so you could run a minimum shift of four, which meant three went on the first engine out, one on the ladder, and then we were the supplemental crew to that. So we would be the fourth on the engine, second one on the ladder when it went out or on the rescue. Sometimes we were actually ran as the second and uh, when we'd go to the medical calls. But yeah, it was truly a great experience, a great group of guys and gals that we worked with. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't have traded those three years uh, for the world. Oh, neat. Well, then uh, after college to uh, Rockford, it, kind of give me an, um, uh, an, an example or how, what's the community like between Rockford, Sublet, and where, where you were in college? What, you, know, you mentioned that um, Sublet's pretty rural farmland. What, what, is, what is it like in Rockford and, and where you went to college? Yeah, so, so very disparate. So Rockford, uh, a good way to put it, I think, is socioeconomically challenged. Uh, so it's the second largest fire department in the state of Illinois. It used to be the second largest city. However, they've had population decline. I want to say today, may, the city might be uh, somewhere in that fourth to fifth range in total population, around 150, 160,000 folks, uh, but a busy department for its size. Uh, it, when I started there, we were running about 15,000 runs a year. Uh, when I left, it was well over 20, 25,000. I believe today they're even, uh, I think they went over 31,500 last year, um, even as the population continues to decline. And we didn't do anything uh, because we did fire and EMS. So we had transport ambulances. Uh, when I started, we only had four, then it went to four and a half and then five. Now they have seven. Uh, but it was just a great place to work to gain experience. Uh, the last firehouse I was assigned before I left to become uh, uh, an entrepreneur, I guess, if you will, 
we ran 6,500 runs out of our firehouse and we just had a ladder company and an ambulance. Uh, so it kept us hopping pretty much all day long, but just a great, uh, yeah, a great place to get some fire duty. Uh, we ran between three and 400 working fires a year. So you'd see, you know, as a city about one a day, we, we ran three to 400 stabbings and shootings as well. Um, so again, as a young paramedic looking for experience, uh, I, I couldn't have been in a better spot. Wow. That, uh, that truck company ambulance staffing, were you assigned to the truck or assigned to the ambulance or been on the day you'd float back and forth between units? Yeah, they had kind of a unique model. So you always had an officer and you always had a, uh, a driver every day. And then the four additional folks assigned were firefighter paramedics. So the backstep guys were firefighter medics. And then two on the ambulance were also fire medics. And we would run a 12-hour uh, day shift and then a 12-hour night shift on the ambulance. So from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., you'd be on the ladder company. At night, you'd flip over to the ambulance. The ambulance would jump on the ladder. And then we would switch day, day and night um, every shift that we would come in. So if I had days today on the ambulance, I'd have uh, nights on the ladder and then vice versa. Was that just to keep uh, kind of uh, equal kind of distribution of workload or was the workload that busy at night? You didn't want to work two shift days back to back on the night side. Yeah, mostly the latter. So uh, because we were pretty busy, it wasn't uncommon for us to run eight to 12 calls after say 8 PM at night. Uh, so for the most part, you really didn't get much sleep um, and they didn't want to have burnout of the, of the medics. Uh, what, what I felt was neat about their system was you would had to be, you had to go to paramedic school within five years and then you had to stay a paramedic for five years after five, so when you're in year 10 or there about year 10, you could actually rotate off an ambulance company and just go back to being a fireman. And you could be on an engine company, a ladder company, uh, but you didn't have to ride the ambulance anymore. Were people doing that? I mean, was that kind of the, the normal progression of somebody's career if they weren't going the officer route? They, would they give up that paramedic at the 10-year mark? That's correct. Some kept their paramedic license, but you could run on just a fire company. And uh, because we still ran a, a fire, uh, whether an engine or a ladder to every medical call. So you could still operate as a paramedic. And I think our union, we had a $2,000, $2,400 bump in pay to keep your medic license because they, we always had to have at least one medic on a fire uh, piece of apparatus. So some of the folks kept it. There are, were some of the folks dropped it down as well if they didn't want that little bump uh, for your pension. Well, that bump, was that uh, an automatic once you become paramedic and you kept that? for the duration of your career or yeah. did you have to wait for that? Okay. So that's you got correct. That started yep. Early. That's yeah. correct. So what, uh, you know, what about, um, what about in sublet? You know, how, how far away is sublet from Rockford and, and how different are those kind of uh, communities? Yeah. So, uh, very different. So, uh, in sublet, we're a rural farming community. Uh, we're 68 square miles, uh, with automatic mutual aid in the EMS area we cover. We're actually about 150 square miles. Uh, so it's mostly cornfields. Uh, in our little town, uh, we don't run a lot of hydrogen fires. So I would say most of the fires that we go to, we're working off a drop tank, well, tank water, and then off a, a drop tank system. So our first three rigs out the door carry 7,000 gallons of water. Wow. Our, our first engine out has 1,000. Uh, then we run two tenders behind that with 3,500 gallons. We set up a water shuttle immediately. Um, I, I do believe, though, if we don't get it with a thousand gallons of water, we're probably not going to get it. It's going to be a water carnival. However, uh, we always have to have that rural water with us because, uh, yeah, almost 99% of our district doesn't have any hydrants in it. Wow. 
So what, what about staff? And uh, you mentioned uh, this this concept that I was talking about earlier of the paid on call. Do you, are, are you all strictly volunteers in sublet or or is there a combination or do you have any career staff there to, to staff that that 7,000 gallons of water going out the door? Yeah, so it's we were volu- completely volunteer up until about a decade ago. And then we moved into a paid on call model. And part of that paid on call model um, is, is twofold for us. One is an EMS component. So we pay our EMS folks to fill staffing 24 hours a day, a couple of dollars an hour just to be in town. And then if there's a call, uh, I believe we pay $15 an hour to the folks that are actually on the ambulance. And for us to take an ambulance call, it's about a two to two and a half hour turn. The closest hospital we have, uh, depending on where we're at in the district, is about 20 minutes away. Uh, The farthest one could be upwards of an hour away if we go to Spring Valley or if we're transporting to Dixon from some of the far reaches of our our, our EMS district. So that's not easy. And to take people away from work for a couple hours is always a challenge. So we try to keep a couple people on call if we can through that EMS schedule. Everybody else is more voluntary. So when the pager goes off or we have an app called I Am Responding on our phone, when you see that, you jump on the call and uh, we go down to the firehouse and you deploy, you know, depending on what the, the, the emergency is, our ambulance. Uh, we run two engines, two tenders, a brush truck, and a, a command vehicle as well. Is it just one ambulance uh, at the house? And, we and- do. So we run one BLS ambulance. And then Amboy, which is our neighbor to the north, has two ambulances that are basic level. However, if a paramedic like myself is there, we can do an infield upgrade as a paramedic level ambulance. And they do so try to staff during the day if they can. So that infield upgrade, is that just, you know, we're, we're going to upgrade that in the CADS computer because now you've got paramedic staffing there and can make that change? Or is there some other kind of process you got to go through? Yeah, we can do it automatically. So with our protocols, with our SOPs and SOGs within our medical resource system, um, as long as one of us is there at the paramedic level, whether they're staffing that day um, or one of us just happens to be in town, uh, if we go on that call and we feel like we need to make that an ALS run, we can upgrade ourselves and start uh, all of the care and treatment uh, as a paramedic level ambulance. So those um, those paid on call staff that you, you you made the comment they're in town and ready to respond, just getting a couple hour couple dollars an hour to be available. Are they at the ha- at the station ready to respond. They're, they're at their regular work or at home. They're just they're they're available. committed to go if they're committed to go if the if the bells ring. That's correct. Uh, they just have to be available in our district to to go. Um, and one of the challenges that we have, uh, you know, like many other places, with our community being so small at 450 people, most jobs are not in town. So a lot of the folks work outside of town, uh, which means that uh, that we're light on staffing during the day, both on the EMS side and on the fire side. So we'll take anybody, you know, we can pretty much during the day to, to fill that void. We also have a, a waiver that allows us to run with one EMR and one EMT. Uh, So that's also helpful for daytime response where staffing might be light. And then if we need to upgrade into a paramedic level, uh, because we cannot in sublet upgrade, we've got to call for a neighboring department to bring a paramedic over. And they've got a fly car that meets us, whether it being on scene or somewhere between uh, their fire station and the hospital. And then we'll do an infield upgrade at that point. Obviously, EMT being an emergency medical technician, that's either certified or licensed, depending upon the state. So what's right. that? That EMR you mentioned—that's not a, a common term I hear too often. What's what is that? A level below EMT? It, it is. So it's an emergency medical responder. It took the place of the first responders in the state of Illinois. So 
they can provide basic level care. Uh, they're just not quite to that EMT level. I want to say today, and it's changed, it's about 80 hours of, of classroom time uh, versus uh, what we went through in the past, which was in excess of 120 to 160 hours. So what, what's happened with, um, you know, yeah, you and I were talking a few, few days ago about just the population of the community and the numbers of members or paid on call staff you've got at that department. What, what do those numbers look like uh, from a community support perspective? Uh, from a community support perspective, it's unbelievable. For a town of 450, our roster today is 34 people. Uh, we've got about 14 on the EMS side, and most of those are cross-trained on the fire side as well. Um, so I'll take those numbers all day long. I would say the average turnout we have for a medical call is typically about six. Uh, if we get a fire or accident, easily a dozen. In some days, we'll have 18 to 20. Um, so we are very, very blessed. Obviously, time of day. And uh, where, where I live, time of year as well, because a lot of the folks that, uh, that help us out are farmers. So because our district is so large, it's not uncommon to have people coming in from the fields. Uh, we had a, a good apartment fire uh, in November of this year, and everybody was in the field. Now, I looked on the I Am Responding app uh, on my phone, and I saw there was three of us in town immediately, and we had a, six or seven more coming in. However, they had to park their tractors and combines uh, or semi-trucks, you know, to get to town. So we did the, the offensive attack with uh, three guys and a hose line. I, I went as the chief, did my size up, did my walk around, controlled the door, went in with the hose line. We found the fire knock it down, shut the door, and then wait for the reinforcements to arrive. So, uh, but that's, you know, kind of how you have to operate in a small town. That's kind of interesting because I'm, I'm sure in Rockford that, that those strategies and tactics are a little bit different. Um, you know, what were some of the other challenges associated with it, that, that response capability or having to wait for that farmer to get out of his combine across the field, down to the station or to the fire scene? What kind of challenges are you seeing there? Yeah, you know, the challenges are just time. Uh, so one of the things that we have, if, if it's EMS folks coming on scene, they will go direct. So a nice thing about having technology today versus 20 years ago, I can look on my phone and see I've got an EMT coming from five miles away. Uh, we may take the ambulance with a couple of us or one in some cases and immediately go to scene and start care. That way that treatment isn't delayed knowing that somebody is coming to jump on, uh, jump on scene and help us out. And that's unique and, again, different from before. Uh, it used to be if there was only one person responding initially and you, you weren't sure who was coming, where, you know, you'd have to pass that off uh, to a mutual aid company coming in from another seven miles away. Uh, so that's that's been good. Uh, but, you know, whether it's an accident and with our, our district being so large, you know, for those guys and gals to get out of the field and have a delay of five to 10 minutes and then to drive 12 miles to the other end of our district, you know, you could have a say a 20 minute response time in some cases to get to, to the far reaches of where we go. Wow. So not always easy. Yeah. And I, I know volunteerism across the country, across the world probably is, is falling off for a lot of the same reasons you just mentioned, you know, I, you know, you work, you don't, you don't work near the fire station or near when I got started as a volunteer in the rescue squad, you did, I, I mean, I, I didn't work close by, so it had to be duty time or coming from home. Employers not letting people away, not to mention the, the off duty or off work, demands of family and, and house and other work. Um, do you see the volunteerism uh, where you're at kind of falling off or is it pretty solid or do you think it's even increasing because of the nature of the community you live in? Yeah, I'd say the nature of our community has actually allowed us to grow as an organization. I know at one point, probably uh, two decades ago, we were down to, uh, you know, probably about 20 folks. 
Uh, we've been able in, in social media, you know, is good in some respects. It's the devil in, in, in others. Um, I'm not a huge fan of social media personally. Um, however, we're, we're stuck with it for right now, both in business and in life. And it really vies for the availability of responders time. You know, I look back at, you know, two, three decades ago when I was a, a young person, you know, I played baseball in town. My folks chased me, you know, with baseball and basketball and things. But you didn't know when everybody's birthday party was. You didn't know that there's a concert 10 miles away. You know, you didn't have travel ball. We didn't have all of these other distractors in our lives that we have today, which kept that small core of people extremely committed. Today, even though, you know, our footprint is larger in terms of people, um, you know, we've got to be respectful and allow for the responsiveness of, of all the people on our department because they're involved in so many things. You know, they're coaching their kids. They're involved in work that's not in the community anymore. Um, you know, we talked about the agricultural part of, of what we do and seasonality of it. So we try to open our arms to all of those folks and allow them to be part of our organization, you know, and obviously meet training requirements and response requirements. We have more female members than we ever had, both on the fire and EMS side, which has been, you know, a welcome change for us. When I started, we only had a few females, mostly on the EMS side. And today we've got some great, great people uh, that I take into a fire anytime on the fire side, and some have turned it into a career. So we're, we're always happy to welcome those folks into our organization. You know, it provides a little bit of diversity as well, which we all need. And uh, it really, and I believe in strength in numbers. And when we have all of those people, you know, to, to supplement and help each other uh, with an organization, have each other others back, uh, the better off we all are. And, uh, you know, I know some volunteer departments and my, my department was combination. We would train up volunteers to be part of the volunteer contingent. And all of a sudden they would get a job in the other jurisdiction. Are you seeing, are, are, are your folks doing that too? Or are they pretty much tied to that rural farmland community and staying, staying with you guys? Uh, well, that's a, that's a good question. So I'll, I'll tell you this, we had 14 EMTs and paramedics, um, a year ago. And this is why we have the EMR program today is uh, we lost two to full-time career fire service jobs last year. Uh, we won uh, or lost one to the local public utility. We lost one to divorce. We lost one to marriage. And, uh, you know, when you think you're doing really well on the EMS side, staffing your ambulance, and, and, and by the way, six of those responders were our top responders, and they all took jobs, you know, and, and the ones that went into the fire service, I mean, God love them. I mean, it's awesome. You know, that's what, you know, we prepared them to do. That's what they did. We're very happy for them. However, we lost some of our best folks, but that's part of what we do is that, that, that cycle of these young people and trying to continually get young people in the door, excited about fire and EMS. And then if, if, if we lose them, that's okay. All we hope is we always have people in that pipeline to keep our organization strong. And what's that old saying of, you know, the, in the business world, it was, uh, yeah, what if we train our people and they leave and they say, okay, what if we don't and they stay? That's, you know, very that's true. The, <laughs> kind of the other side of the coin. So, uh, so thanks for that. Uh, let's, let's jump to kind of the next side of the coin, if you will. How did, how did you get involved in business? Um, you mentioned you went to college and majored in finance. Did, did that play a role in it or did you have that business mindset or you have that as a long-term goal even when you went to college? Yeah, I think I've always had the entrepreneurial mindset, um, even at a young age. Uh, when I was 10 years old, I always tell the story that my father, uh, I want, so I'm the youngest of, of four in my family, and there's a 10-year difference between my youngest sister and myself, and a 20-year spread between my oldest sister and, and myself. So my parents were a little bit older. I had hand-me-down everything. That's kind of how, you know, growing up the youngest in a family of, of four was. 
and I wanted a new ball glove. And my father said, well, you can have anything you want. And I'm like, great. When can we go? And he goes, well, as soon as you have enough money to buy it. So the light bulb went on to, for me that, uh, that I need to figure out ways to make money. So I bought my first lawnmower at age 10. Uh, I went to the local Ace Hardware store. I bought an old rider and I built that into 76 yards uh, through high school and then college, which uh, very lucky I was able to pay cash for college. And, uh, but, I, you know, worked pretty much 40 to 60 hours a week, uh, you know, say eight months out of the year. Uh, but I always enjoyed that. And then when I wasn't uh, mowing yards through high school and then college, I'd started an advertising specialties company and I would peddle pens and pencils and any widget and trinket that you wanted your name on to local banks and businesses. And I would sell that, uh, you know, through the wintertime and, uh, and then just always enjoyed, you know, finding ways to make money, which led me into um, being a partner in the Dingus Fire Company, which initially was E&B Fire Safety, the Illinois Fire Store back in 2002. Um, I slowly bought my partners out and then in 2011 bought everybody out and wanted to make the business my own. It's been a ton of fun. We've made three acquisitions over the last, uh, over the last five years. Um, our business has grown four times in the last five years, which that's always been exciting. And then our footprint went from Illinois to Illinois to, in Iowa uh, we moved into Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, and now we're in Minnesota, Missouri, and Indiana. So we've got an eight-state footprint. Uh, we've got 87 people in that geography, and uh, it's just been very exciting and very fun. And then I've been blessed to be part of some other organizations or startups. Um, I helped start a company called Leatherhead Tools, which was a, a lot of fun. That's when I was a fireman and paramedic in Rockford. Uh, we partnered with a, a company called Dasco Pro and Fiberglass Innovations, I had no ownership in that company, but I met two great individuals, Rick Parker and Don Dre, uh, and actually a third one, Rob Taylor, and gave him some ideas for high visibility in the fire service. Uh, we had created a Leatherhead Bar, which is a Halligan Bar, uh, some New York roof hooks, and this dates back now 16 years ago, and uh, was able to partner with them uh, to develop uh, a distribution network, both nationally and internationally, and we sold product even into the UN, which I was very proud of and, and, and very excited to do. And then I've started other companies, uh, started one called the 911 Network uh, back in 2016, which is a little technology company still still going today. Uh, we started Vanguard Safety Wear, which is a glove company. A lot of folks are familiar with. I partnered with Andy Shapiro, uh, who came from a company called Tech Trade. Uh, and right now, I believe we're about 10% of the overall fire glove market. Uh, I think we've got 60,000 firefighters in North America wearing our products, so we're extremely proud of that. And then we also developed um, a product called Leatherhead Metals, which is uh, metal shields made out of aircraft aluminum, and those are manufactured in uh, Streeter, Illinois, just south of where our shop is at. And and I own half a trademark on that with our folks at Alloy. Well, that's a it's a pretty diverse business background from mowing lawns to making promotional pins to fire gloves to tools. What is there, is there anything that are, that's in common between all of them or what lessons did you learn as a, as a lawn maintenance technician running your own company that's now still ap applicable in this larger company, Dingus Fire Equipment, that, um, that you put, still put to use today? Never stop working. <laughs> wow. it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, the most difficult thing, I think, for young people and what I'm trying to teach my children is, you know, there, there's no shortcut for hard work. Uh, there's absolutely nothing you can do in life that, that comes easy. You know, there's no get rich quick scheme out there. It's hours upon hours upon hours of labor, 
getting things done, figuring things out. I've got a, uh, a hashtag that we use and, and signs all over our office called GSDT and it's get stuff done today. And usually we substitute the, the S part of that, but um, it's like, I don't want an excuse. I, I don't need an excuse. Just figure out a way to, to get things done. And we hire the absolute smartest people that we can within our organizations. And we allow those people a lot of leniency and a lot of room to be creative and a lot of room to get things done or not get things done. And I think that's what's allowed our organization to grow four times over the last five years. I think that's what's allowed our glove business to explode. Um, I think that's what, uh, you know, all the businesses I guess have been involved in allowed them to be successful. You know, when I look back over the last couple of decades, I've been part of a startup of six companies and five of those are still in business today. I love it. We created an application for fire service buying that all of our reps in the field use for both onboarding and uh, for, for making it easy to sell product in the field. But we created that app in Amboy, Illinois, you know, and, uh, and it's neat. We've got 120,000 SKUs on a little icon application on your phone. And uh, that was a game changer for our organization because we can onboard people in about two hours. Our guys and gals are selling. We show transparency of cost of product. And uh, they can quote business to any customer they want in seconds. And then we wrote the APIs from that app into our accounting system, into a customer portal. So it all ties together. And that's pretty darn cool. I call that PFC. Pretty freaking cool. Pretty freaking cool. Yeah. Substitute freaking for some other word, if you'd I, like. If I, I may or may not. I may or may <laughs> uh, Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting. I, you know, I poked around on your website a little bit the other day, just kind of seeing what types of products you've got available. And it's, it's a, a broad breadth of stuff. Uh, the gloves, boots, and a lot of other equipment that's on there. Uh, I'm sure you're not only the, the the like the glove product you're pretty intimately involved with, but distributing this other fire safety equipment. Uh, how much are you engaged with like the manufacturers of the product? It, the, my ultimate question being is what's on the horizon from a firefighter safety perspective, from an equipment perspective that we might see in the field next year or five years from now? What do you think is on the horizon for us? So I'm not going to answer the, the last part of that. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not to let any trade secrets out. But. Not, not yet. Um, I will tell you this. Um, I think like everything else, technology, as it becomes more advanced, more available and cheaper, you're going to see that more integrated in what we do, whether that that's coming from the breathing apparatus side, the thermal imaging side, and even in fabric and technology, potentially with some wearables and turnout gear. That's happening. Um, I think what you're going to see also through the advent of technology becoming faster, easier, and more efficient is the care and cleaning and maintenance of turnout gear. Now, it's still labor intensive to do it. However, getting it picked up, getting it repaired, getting it clean and inspected is something that I think is going to be easier, not just for the metropolitan departments, but also for the small departments out in rural America. And that's a problem we're actually working on solving today uh, through an application we're developing. So, I'm always excited about those things, even though we're just a bunch of hillbillies out in rural, you know, rural America. These are things that I'm very passionate about. These are things our team are extremely passionate about. And we've been lucky enough to partner with brands like Lion, who's the number one, uh, you know, the largest selling turnout gear brand in the U.S. today. And these are good, good folks, smart folks that, that are another family organization that care about the health, safety and well-being of firefighters. And that's extremely important. And that, that cleaning part. Um, I think it's probably the biggest one. I've, I've had a number of friends, colleagues get come down with cancer and uh, that cleaning of turnout gear is turning out to be one of the most, uh, call it challenging, but also one of, probably one of the easiest things to mitigate that risk uh, going forward. So that's, that's good news to hear that that's kind of on the horizon. Well, when you look at 
and again, I've read some studies and there's, by the way, there's no perfect study. There's no perfect study for the fire service to tell us what that cancer risk is. And there's no perfect study is the general population, what, what the cancer risk is. But when you hear things for large Metro departments saying that potentially 67% of their workforce gets cancer over their lifetime, that's a big deal, right? Now to put that in perspective, some of the studies I've read say four out of 10 of us in, in, in general, in the general population, We'll have cancer, but if we can take that 27% difference and reduce that or mitigate it in some way, shape, fashion, or form, I think that's our responsibility as chief officers and my responsibility as a distributor and equipment manufacturer to help reduce the risk so hopefully more folks come home at the end of the day and they spend spend time in retirement with their families. There you go. Well, let's kind of try to bring this to wrap it up to a close. Um, any, any, um, any major incidents you work that kind of stick in your mind, um, that, you know, kind of make you, I just saw you chuckle there a little bit. So, uh, the, I've always said, we have those calls that make us laugh. Uh, some make us cry and others just make us glad that we were a part of the part of the effort. Uh, anything that pops into your mind over those kind of over the course of your career? Yeah, I think, I mean, I've got, I've got lots being blessed in both the rural setting and the small career. And then on the, uh, you know, the urban side, uh, there's two that really stick out in my mind that, uh, have been, been really great. And, and I think, Really great from a whole host of standpoints, but the first one was uh, my nephew and I responded to a pediatric code. And again, uh, I always say, if you need a paramedic bad, I'm a bad paramedic. I'll raise my hand at that. Like, like, like I'm your last line of defense. So if you see me, you're having a bad day. I know guys uh, that call themselves LRLS, last resort life support. So. That's that. Well, that's how I feel most days. Uh, but my nephew is a brand new EMT, and now he's a career fireman paramedic and actually works for us on the side. But we responded to a preemie code. Uh, not breathing and it happened to be a block from the firehouse. And we walked in there. Uh, the, the baby was apneic, uh, was in respiratory arrest, had no two sat in the 50s, pulse rate in the low 50s was blue. Um, it had RSV, so it was kind of full of mucus uh, face down. We picked the baby up. We suctioned the baby, started CPR as we were obviously expediting to get out of the house. And within two or three minutes, uh, the baby started breathing on its own. And uh, they ended up flying it out uh, due to being a preemie. But I see that 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 young child now in church uh, every uh, you know nice. every every weekend. And it's one of those things that that makes you thankful. One that I did keep my EMS license, uh, but I was thankful to share in that experience with my nephew. And uh, that led him from there to be a career firefighter and paramedic today. And, and I'm always proud of that fact. So that's a call that that definitely sticks out in my mind. And then another one I had uh, back in I think 2015 we had a tornado that went through our district and it went through the largest campground uh, in the world, which is Woodhaven Lake. So it was about, I believe, a half mile wide, three miles long. It damaged a thousand mobile homes. Uh, the day before that incident, there were 7,000 people in that, uh, actually in that trailer park or in that uh, recreational facility. Um, that day, at that time, there were about 700. Um, when we got that first call, I was trying to get my, my family in our basement and if you've never went through a tornado or never experienced one, I've, I've witnessed four. Uh, this one sounded like, when they say it sounds like a freight train, it really does sound like a freight train. And it sounded like all the furniture in our house was being sucked up our chimney. And I, I was trying to peek out, of course, you know, when it's going through your neighborhood, uh, you're supposed to be in the basement, you know, in the corner, which we had our neighbors in there in our basement. I want to see it. So I'm trying to peek out our kitchen window as, you know, stuff's flying by, but Ended up responding to that, uh, and, and what we didn't know was it knocked down all of our communications. So the first call we had was in, uh, an oak tree went through a trailer with somebody trapped, 
and that came on our phones. And I told my wife, I said, I'll be back in a few minutes. Um, I think I came back about 24 hours later. Uh, we ended up as I responded to that call. Uh, and I don't know, Chief, if you ever had a call where it just didn't, something didn't feel right. So even though we didn't, you know, pagers weren't going off because of, of the communication breakdown, which we didn't know happened. Um, I'm heading out to this campground in the command vehicle. And uh, I, I called our assistant chief by, via phone. I said, I, something doesn't feel right. I hope it's all right. I'm calling for a mass casualty box on this. And uh, as I got out to the campground, we pre-planned like everybody else does. So we had two emergency entrances to this campground. There's only one place which has security to go in and out. However, we've got emergency entrances. Those were taken out with power lines down, with trees down. So everything you train and plan for is gone immediately. And uh, I ended up going through the, the main security entrance and the poor lady that met me there, her eyes were about this big. And she goes, oh my gosh, she goes, we have uh, 15 calls for service for you guys. And I'm like, man, I, we haven't got any radio communication. You know, we, we have anything. We have one. And a deputy sheriff pulled up and he said, hey, you've got. All right. So you're talking about uh, you got to the to that campground and you got met by a deputy sheriff and said, no, no, you don't have one call here. You've got a, a lot. Yeah, we ended up with 15. Uh, well, initially 15 calls by the time I got out to the campground and our assistant chief was already on ground and was calling me saying, listen, there's devastation everywhere. Uh, there's trailers up in trees. Um, I'm not sure exactly how we're going to get to people. Um, and it's one of those things as a firefighter uh, that, you know, immediately you want to help people. And that's, that's just what you want to do. And I started to drive through the campground and something in my head said, you know what, you need to pull to an open parking lot away from everything, which I did. I set up a command post and I was said God was on my side that day. Uh, a guy, and this is no, no kidding. A guy walked through the trees and he said, Hey, do you remember who I am? And I looked at him and of course, you know, when you've got all these calls for service and everything's running through your head and you're trying to get resources coming, uh, that uh, the last thing you do, you know, is expect is to see somebody, you know, walking through the trees. Well, it was the deputy chief of Bolingbrook, Illinois, which is a Chicagoland suburb that happened to be a customer of mine. And, uh, and he said, I don't know if you know this, but he goes, I was the ESDA director and I'm into IEMA. And he goes, he goes, I, I have all the reporting software for a mass casualty incident on my computer. And he goes, I'll scribe for you. Well, at this time we didn't know, I didn't realize the devastation that we we're about to encounter. I'm like, yep, I'll take you up on it. Well, he's already got his computer and I set up a command post and uh, he was next to me for, I would say the first operational period, which was not quite 12 hours. And during that period, we had 17 ambulances on site, uh, three or four TRT teams. Um, it took down an estimated 20,000 trees, a yeah, thousand mobile homes. Uh, we only, and, and, and again, God was on a lot of people's side that day, including our own. Uh, we had set up and taken the local school and turned it into a triage center, uh, which, you know, we thought we were going to have dozens of people injured when we had, we had all the ambulances lined up and it ended up, we only had one critical person, nobody died. And, uh, over the next 142 hours, we ended up staying on scene with control of that incident for over six days. Uh, we had 400 responders on scene and not one first responder injury. Wow. So it was unbelievable. But, you know, as you're dispatching all of this equipment and things that you really remember, um, it was under the cover of darkness. And out at this campground, there's no no overhead lights. So it was all pretty much flashlights, headlights, you know, whatever. And we, we, you're trying to make maps. So this campground has 30 miles of road in it. 
And again, we have no idea at this point that there's 20,000 trees down and the roads are, they're two lane, but you know, there's no shoulder, there's no anything. It's all just trees, oak trees and, and pine trees. And uh, people would call back seasoned firefighters from career departments, volunteer departments. And we'd say, hey, I need you to get to a lot in section, you know, say half mile away from where they were from or from where from. And it was taking them hours. And you'd call them via phone because the communications or radios were having a a real hard issue with uh, due to the weather and towers being down, which you don't anticipate either. And these guys are telling me, they're like, Nick, we, we can't get there. We're going to have to cut our way, you know, to a certain location. And you don't think about that until you think about, especially if you live in rural America, where you've got 20,000 trees stacked in a roadway trying to get to, you know, some mobile homes on the other side of a cul-de-sac or a block. And uh, the next morning, well, we, we stayed on ground uh, doing this incident. And a couple things, too. Our fire chief was gone, which that year we ended up having two fire deaths. Uh, we had a tornado. We had all the every bad thing that could happen in a year happen, and our fire chief was gone. And he called me during the incident because we were on national news within an hour. It was on WGN, and then it, it hit CNN. It hit New York News. It hit everything. And uh, and he goes, hey, he goes, how's it going down there? I'm like, yeah, it's good. I'm like, no problems. You know, I'm like, uh, like we got it covered. And about an hour later, he, he called me again. He goes, I'm on my way home. Uh, Sublets, you know, on CNN. And I was like, well, yeah, it's a little more than we anticipated this was going to be. But in the morning, I, I, so I hadn't seen the actually devastation where I set up the command post. And again, the, the guys and gals have been working for about eight or nine straight hours at this point. And they came in looking beat up. You know, we had found what we thought as far as everybody for the evening. We had transported the people that needed to be transported. Everybody was just beat and tired. And uh, I wanted to see it. So the sun's coming up. We got a couple cups of coffee, a couple of the guys who were in charge of operations uh, with me, both on the TRT side, on the EMS side, had never really driven through to see what the devastation looked like. So we jumped in our command vehicle, grabbed a cup of coffee, and we started to make the drive. And we drove for the first mile through this campground, and there wasn't a tree down. There was no damage, no trees down. And I remember turning a corner, and I'm like, I had a sick feeling in my stomach that we had called all these resources in you know, from this Mabus response. And I'm talking hundreds of people the first night and, uh, and, and we hadn't seen any damage. Well, then we turned this corner and I looked up probably 60 feet in the air and there was a mobile home wrapped around a tree and it had the insulation hanging out, which looked like a person. And, uh, and that, that's when uh, for the next, I would say mile, mile and a half, that's all we saw. And all we could think of was how many dead bodies were we going to have that morning, you know, as we really started to go in and do a secondary search. So at that point, we called the National Guard in. Uh, we had called for a no-fly zone over top. And, uh, and yeah, we brought in a request the National Guard and uh, the USAR team for Illinois, which was Task Force One, which at that point had never been deployed uh, in, in Illinois state history. So they ended up coming out to our tornado. And, you know, we walked through, and thank goodness, there ended up being no civilian deaths during this. So even though we went through and, and had to go through, you know, thousands of trailers that were damaged and destroyed, nobody died. And uh, we were pro- pretty proud of that fact. And that was due to early detection by the campground that they sounded their sirens and they had 29 concrete and brick bathhouses that all the people stuffed themselves into uh, during the incident. And if they wouldn't have done that, we would have had, you know, dozens upon dozens of deaths. Well, that, that was going to be my next question is how did, how did, how did the lack of ser- serious injuries and deaths occur? And it sounds like they were ready for it. I, I'm, I'm assuming that's a tornado in that part of the country is not, terribly uncommon, but hitting a trailer park like that, they were certainly ready for it. So kudos to them. 
Yeah, and I think it goes back to, you know, whether you're a young firefighter, company officer, or a chief officer, you know, it's adapt and overcome. And you can apply this to business as well. But, you know, here we've trained, you know, year after year for, for a tornado at this location. And, uh, you know, the first thing within a couple of minutes you realize is everything we train for, where to stage people, where to deploy resources, you know, to, you can't. And everything goes out the window in the first three or four minutes of an incident. And then, then you know, you kind of scratch your head and quickly on the fly adapt. Well, we're all coming in here. Here's where they stage. Here's what we're doing. Here's how. And, you know, with all the trees down, that took away, you know, a way to get to all the people that were injured and hurt. So, again, just adapt and overcome. Wow. Awesome story. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, kind of bring it to almost to a close. Um, talk a little bit about, um, you know, I mentioned that, John Q firefighter can actually go to your website and, uh, and purchase something that they need. I mean, I know you do do business with the fire departments, larger scale departments. Um, how does a, how does a firefighter who's on the job today, who wants to look for a different pair of gloves, a different pair of boots or some, or a volunteer that may not have the kind of governmental support. How do they get in touch with you guys to look at your equipment and look what you've got available? Sure. Uh, we've got a website. It's dingusfire.com. Uh, you can always call our office. It's 815-857-2000. Um, almost everybody that works for us has fire and EMS training, which we think is pretty pretty cool as well. Um, so they can help you out if you have any questions. We're direct with 230 manufacturers, hundreds of thousands of products. They're not all on our website yet, although someday I hope, hope all of them to be. And then we've got a pretty good following on Facebook. I think we have about 13,000 people follow us on Facebook, another thousand or two on Instagram. And then you can also follow our subsidiary uh, uh, sites and brands, which are Leatherhead Metals and uh, and Vanguard Safety Wear. Wow. Well, just to make sure they understand, it, Dingus is D I N G E S dot com. Just that's correct. Dingusfire.com. dot com. That's correct. Dingusfire. D I N G E S Fire dot com. So, yes, sir. Are you guys, uh, I think you guys are going to be at FDIC as well. You got to have a booth up there. Oh yeah, yeah. We'll have a booth right on the main floor. So we're going to be housed right between Lion, Dragger, and Bullard. Uh, we've got a ten by forty this year on the main floor, so we're pretty excited. Well, neat. Enjoy that. I wish I was uh, coming up there to see you guys and we could meet, meet in person, but uh, this is going to have to do it for now. So uh, last two questions for you after, um, if I did my math right, 25, 26 years in the fire service. And yes, sir. Offici- officially, plus a couple of early years before that. And uh, how what, what piece of advice would you give new firefighters coming on the job from the fire service perspective? And then I got another one for you for the business side of the shop. Yeah, I think, you know, from the firefighter side is is never stop learning and never stop training. I always believe laziness breeds laziness in the fire service. So if you ever have a company officer, you ever have a chief officer or just a group of people that, uh, you know, want to kick their feet up at the firehouse every day and not learn something, that's the absolute wrong thing to do. And you need to be the agent of change uh, as, as a young person. So never stop training, never stop learning. And I had uh, a fire chief that I had when I started in 1997. His name was Buck Kellen. And he told me, hey, kid, always remember this. Every call you go on, learn something, whether that be something, you know, on a medical call, whether it's a gas shutoff, a stairwell, estimating your stretch, learn something on every call. And he goes, someday you might be good. And, uh, you know, and I always took that advice, you know, even though we ran a lot of medical calls in Rockford, even though we went to a lot of automatic alarms, you know, and, and smell and bell calls, I always tried to look for something different and unique and then talk through that uh, with the, the, whether it was my partner on the ambulance 
or the backstep folks that I was with and talk about what we see. Hey, what would you do here? If we had a fire on the second story, how much hose line would that be? If we pulled up on an apartment building, hey, how many, you know, how many occupants are here? Or how many units are in here by looking at the gas shutoffs or the electrical shutoffs? And I always enjoyed doing that. And I, I hope, you know, now as a, a fire officer, it's made me a better person. And, and I hope that the younger people are looking at doing those same things all the all the time. No doubt. A real common theme with everybody I've talked to for this podcast is, you know, keep training, keep learning, because the job is going to change, change as you go through through your career, too. So uh, last question for you, you know, uh, obviously many, many years in business and it all started with a baseball glove, apparently. And uh, now you're selling fire gloves. Uh, any any advice for uh, young entrepreneurs that may be in the fire service? I know I know guys in in the fire station, they've got they're on shift work and some of them kind of start side businesses on their own. Any, any advice for those guys that might be starting out on the entrepreneur front? Yeah, I guess three quick things. Number one, communication. You can't over communication, uh, communicate enough, whether that be in business uh, with your family or on the fire ground. So, so communication is always number one. Uh, number two, never, never give up. And uh, you know, that dates back to the old Winston Churchill story when he walked into, I can't remember if it was Oxford and uh, they expected him to give some long, drawn-out speech, and he muttered the words, never give up. He got back in his limousine, put the cigar in his mouth, and drove away. And that probably is the most impactful thing I ever remember from high school was, was, was hearing that, is never give up, so don't. And then the last thing goes back to you know the hashtag, GSDT, get stuff done today. You know, There's no excuses. Anybody in the world can have an excuse, but not everybody can execute. So just keep executing. The, the, the path of business is not a straight one. You know, you look at it, look at a, you know, a stream, it, it always meanders and there's no, nothing straight in life. So you've got to figure out your way to navigate through, adapt, overcome, and don't make an excuse. Great advice all the way around. And, uh, Chief Nick Dingus from, uh, Sublet, Illinois and Dingus Fire. Uh, thanks for your time. I appreciate the, your, your stories. Yeah. yeah the one about the tornado is certainly impactful. That's a, that's an impressive one for sure. And uh, good luck with the company and uh, best of luck to you. Thanks, man. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Late. And uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, quick shout out to everybody who downloads and listens and gives me feedback. I appreciate all that for sure. And if anybody wants to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com backslash firehouse logbook podcast and get some of the behind the scenes uh, episodes. You got a few of them up there and I uh, plan on putting a few more of those up. Uh, again, any comments or questions or questions uh, for any of the guests, uh, shoot me an email at firehouselogbook at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow along on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again, Chief. You bet. Thanks, Robbie.